was about uh, 10 years ago, almost, that uh, Dan Brenzel joined our staff here at Grace Church, uh, bringing into our midst an immense collection of gifts and a deep passion for the Word of God that has had an impact on us in concentric circles over this last decade. Um, on me personally, on the pastoral staff and elders, uh, and on the body, even over these last nearly five years that he's led us in worship. You've heard about the two going away parties. I'm not sure that's enough, but it'll have to suffice. But this very well might be Dan's last opportunity to open the Word of God with us on a Sunday morning. I'd like us to welcome him to the pulpit today. Dan. feel like I graduated. <laughs> Let's pray as we turn to the book of Acts. <clears throat> oh God, you the great king of glory, you who have exalted your only son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your throne in heaven. Do not leave us, we pray, as orphans. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to illumine your word now so that in it we might see Christ's glory and so be transformed into his image. Amen. Well, our text today is from the sixth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles to which you can turn in your Bible. Now, we will read the first seven verses and camp out there this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, 
and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Word of God. Seasons filled with new endeavors and massive transformations are times of great excitement. They are also dangerous times, bringing new problems and unusual potential for disaster. That is a fair description of the church's early days. Exciting newness and transformation and weighty challenges and crises. Today's passage narrates one such early crisis, threatening disaster for the young body of Christ. The gravity of the moment can be easy to miss given the brevity and simplicity of the passage. So let's spend some time filling out the picture a bit. As we read in verse 1, the disciples were increasing in number. In the preceding chapters, myriads are being added to the church in the span of maybe just a year or two. About 3,000 added on Pentecost in Acts 2. About 5,000 sometime later in chapter 4. And many others being added daily to the church. Most of these were Jews. And all of this is taking place in Jerusalem, the city of the Jews. But the people were not all from Jerusalem. Many were transplants, as it were. Jews who were born in Gentile lands and thus speakers of languages other than the Aramaic spoken in Jerusalem. Jews with Greek cultural sensibilities and manners that differed noticeably from what we might call the Hebrew culture of Judean natives. We know of many Jews born and raised in Greek lands who went to Jerusalem not just once or twice a year for feasts, but as a permanent relocation, perhaps desiring to be near the temple. We might liken them to people who emigrate looking for greater economic opportunities. Most likely, it's folks like this that are in view in Luke's reference in Acts 6.1 to Hellenists. The Hellenists, were probably Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who relocated to Jerusalem but knew little to no Aramaic, in contrast to what Luke calls the Hebrews, Aramaic speakers who were probably native to Judea. It's reasonable to think that given the many differences of language and culture, Greek-speaking Christians sort of stuck to themselves and Aramaic-speaking Christians sort of stuck to themselves. They didn't much intermingle, whether in worship or in daily labor and life. Now, I suppose that that could work fine and dandy in some circumstances, but it is really precarious for those on the margins of society. There were many such among the Hellenists. Indeed, droves of Jewish widows from the dispersion relocated to end their days in Jerusalem in the first century, probably seeking support from the Jewish temple welfare system that was available in those days. Early on, Christians too, as 
the preceding chapters of Acts show very clearly, established a community effort to care for the destitute, sharing and selling to assist any in need. As Jewish widows from Greek lands moved to Jerusalem and converted to Christ, their reliance would shift from the temple system to the church's attention, support, and care. Now, most assuredly, it was the Hebrew Christians who were the ones who set up and operated the church's communal support system. They were the first Christians, and they were able to work from the long-established pattern of Jewish welfare practices. But, as we've seen, the Hebrews and Hellenists functionally kept to themselves, paying practical daily attention only to their circle. So the ones most in need, the Hellenist widows, slipped from the attention of the daily distribution. Apparently, we can have exceptional experiences of community and sharing with and coming to the aid of others, such as appears in Acts 4 and 5, and all the while, widows in Acts 6 go hungry in our neighborhoods. <laughs> How can that happen? Well, all it takes is dividing up into niche groupings. A niche church marketed through intentional or unintentional means to a limited audience. A niche small group that serves for all practical purposes as my real church. All it takes is to so groom and zoom our days that our social interactions are curated to be only with certain kinds of people, people I already know, people I already agree with, people affluent enough to have computers and smartphones, people who have the link and the password. All it takes is cutting out from our lives public gathering points that are outside of our individual control, where serendipitous encounters take place with individuals we might be uncomfortable around, but who are nevertheless brothers and sisters in Christ. All it takes is a subtle, functional redefinition of church to be anything less than all the wild and weird and wonderful people that God unites to Christ by the power of His Spirit. When such things happen, then it's fairly easy for many others with whom we are bound in Christ as brothers and sisters and who are, in fact, right next door to us to slip from the radar and suffer. Something like that seems to have been happening here in Acts 6. This is no small matter. For at least three reasons, this is a major crisis in early church history. First, God cares about the widow on the margins of society. 
It's all over the Bible, but just to, to cite just one clear scripture, which is very well known, in James 1.27, we are told that pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's what pure and undefiled religion is. One of God's main and abiding concerns is care for the defenseless and the destitute. Acts 6 is a crisis because it's a moment when the church can either start attending to what God attends to in the world or keep going its merry way, paying attention only to their own insular needs while oblivious to sisters in need next door. The apostles know very well how central care for the widow is to the heart of God. So when the Hellenists' complaint comes to their attention, they are prepared to take drastic action. It is not right, they say in verse 2, that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Now the operating assumption, which we cannot miss here, is that they will serve tables if they have to, lest the Hellenist widows starve. This verse, so often cited to show the importance of preaching, at the very same time shows that feeding those in need is non-negotiable. It is a tragedy that Hellenist widows are starving, and the apostles, if need be, will personally step up even if to the neglect of other duties. But that would also be a tragedy. And this is a second reason Acts 6 involves a major crisis. The apostolic devotion to prayer and the ministry of the Word is crucial for the mission of God. It's a non-negotiable to the identity of the church. The silencing of the voice of prayer and of the proclaimed word is the death of the church. If widows are starving and the apostles stop what they are rightly called to do in order also rightly to give widows nourishment, then the church and Christ's mission will starve for not being prayerfully fed on the word. Acts 6 is a major crisis third because of what's at the heart of the good news of God's work in Christ. According to Ephesians 2, in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, God is uniting into one, one body, the Jewish and Gentile worlds. The world divides up into thousands of idolatrous kingdoms, kingdoms of political agendas, kingdoms of intellectual orientations and maturity levels, kingdoms of military or economic might, kingdoms of national identity, kingdoms of race and family and blood. Through the new creation of one new people submitted to one head and king, God is revealing his manifold wisdom even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.10. In our own power, we can establish a tight-knit community of folks more or less just like us. 
But when a people appears for whom water and wine are thicker than blood, then the wisdom, power, and grace of God is present and appearing for only God's working in Christ can bring that about. Acts 6 is a crisis because in it, the manifestation of the truth of the gospel and of God's glory are at stake. This is no light matter. This is a major problem with the threat of shipwreck on the horizon. Acts 6, 1-7 marks a key and perilous transition in early church history. And it narrates the wonderful way in which a major problem was resolved for the good. How? Well, it was resolved by the raising up of seven men to serve at table. This is a story about the calling of the seven to ministry. Verse 4 speaks of the apostles' labor in the ministry of the word. I think that's what most of us, most of the time, consider ministry to be. Ministry is churchy things. Things pastors do, for example, preach, or things missionaries do, for example, move to Africa, or things that we do at the church building, for example, change diapers in the nursery. But if I change diapers at my house, well, that's surely not ministry, is it? The thing is, Luke uses the same word, ministry, in verse 1, when speaking of everyday care for those in need, though translations mostly obscure this. The ESV translates it as the daily distribution. The King James is better, speaking of the daily ministration, but that's kind of old and stodgy. The New American Standard is also helpful, speaking of the daily serving of food, but it's just the same word that, that, that's translated ministry in verse 4. Ministry is just a fancy word for service. In Acts 6, there's a ministry of word and a ministry of table. Both are ministry because both are service to God and neighbor and service to neighbor in the name of God. Some of us are called to serve neighbor more regularly in overtly churchy ways like preaching sermons. Some of us are called to serve neighbor in mundane and unspectacular ways, like preparing a meal. Sometimes we do this at the church building. Oftentimes, most of the time, I'd say, this happens in the hundreds of other spheres to which we are sent from the church's gathering. It's a reason we end the service here, worship service, with ascending. God's doing that for service. In this light, we can see that every one of us has ministry to fulfill. God calls every Christian in some way to serve neighbor in his name. Ministry isn't just for a select few, for church workers, for employed adults, for a group of unusually holy kingdom citizens. Ministry is what all Christians are called to in the sphere of the ordinary and the mundane. 
Families serving strangers by hospitality. Construction workers serving communities by building dependable homes. Children serving siblings by being courteous, kind, and servant-hearted in everyday responsibilities. Administrative assistants serving co-workers by thoughtful and skillful effort doing their part to help their companies serve the broader society. Parents serving infants by changing their diapers every six minutes. If it is loving, attentive, persevering, wise service for our neighbor's good in the name of the God of heaven and earth who calls us, then it can rightly be called ministry. But the crucial question is, therefore, how are we called to a specific form of ministry? How does God, by His Spirit, call us to this or that in the cause of Christ. And I think we can discern in Acts 6 some key facets of how God calls to service, zeroing in on how God called the seven to the ministry of the table. In particular, I want to highlight five ways God's calling of the seven to the ministry of the table played out. And along the way, I'll weave in how Jen and I have discerned God's calling to the church in Hinckley, Minnesota, in order to share with you a bit of how the Lord has been working in our lives in this, my last sermon, at least for a while, here at Grace. We, we can begin with, with something that feels silly to point out because it's so obvious. God called the seven to this ministry in Jerusalem by placing them in Jerusalem. Stephen and friends were chosen for this table service because they were there at the time. You know who wasn't called to this service in Jerusalem? The entirely fictitious early Christian Eric of Ephesus. Even though Eric was full of passion and skill and humanitarian aid. He devoted his life to that. Everyone knew he was good at it. He loved it, despite all that. Nevertheless, living in Ephesus hundreds of miles away, he was clearly not called to meet these specific needs in Jerusalem. I feel the need to flag something so obvious in order to highlight a crucial theological reality. Much, much more is at work in God's calling of us to this or that than simply what we feel passionate about and think we're good at. That much, much more involves the expansive reality called the providence of God. Wendell Berry is a farmer slash poet slash novelist. You know, you met people like this, right? He's a farmer slash poet slash novelist from Kentucky whom I rather like. And he explains why he farms in Kentucky in a way that is as elegant as it is theologically correct. He has said that he's a farmer in Kentucky, quote, by an interworking of chance and choice. That's exactly right. 
Certainly Barry made decisions and acted on desires that he had in a way that played some part in him becoming a lifetime farmer in Kentucky. But that cannot fully explain it. All sorts of things outside his control and personal sense of vision. Things that happened from his perspective by chance contributed to his place and his form of service. In theological terms, we call this the working of God's sovereign providence. We are where we are, not by my and your sovereign desires and decisions, but by God's continual working and guiding and providing in our lives. Stephen and associates made many decisions that were related to their being in Jerusalem in Acts 6. But above and behind and underneath and through and sometimes even opposite to their conscious deciding, there was a sovereign God providentially working to place them there and then. They didn't decide to be born of Jewish parents. They didn't decide to orchestrate historical movements of empires so that in the first century a wave of Hellenist widows would descend upon Jerusalem. They didn't decide when to send Christ and launch the church's mission. They didn't decide or have a passion for any of this and much, much more that led to their situation. Their decisions and desires were not determiners of history. So it would have been foolish of them only to ask, as the primary question of discerning God's calling, what do I really want to do? They also, perhaps firstly, needed to ask, where has God put me? What opportunities and needs are in God's providence right in front of my face, which I might be ignoring for preoccupation with my inner longings? Fools, to paraphrase Proverbs, have their eyes fixed on the ends of the earth anywhere and everywhere except where they are by God's good providence. What if God has set these people here and me here, as Mordecai would say, for such a time in need as this? Jen and I have, for several years, felt a strong yearning to take up the labor of a senior pastor. And yet, for reasons locked up in the mysterious ways of God, no door opened. And we can't begin to understand why. That's not our job to figure out all the ins and outs of God's mysterious workings. But for whatever reasons, no door opened. Years of waiting. No place that needed a senior pastor like me cropped up. No obvious path for us to find such a place materialized. But one thing was clear to us. We remained here <laughs> with the local needs of this body and our neighborhood. So we knew, at least, whatever yearnings and impulses we might feel, for the here and now our calling was clear. Serve at Grace Church and on our block. By the same token, when doors to the church in Hinckley started opening, clearly more than our decisions were at work. Here's, here's just one of many striking examples. 
One of the first times I heard of First Presbyterian Hinckley and of the retirement of their pastor was actually a couple summers ago when I got what was to me at least an out-of-the-blue phone call from a guy named Stephen. I'd never talked about, talked to him before, heard of him. I, I mean, I, I know some Stevens, but not this one. And Stephen called me up. He was hoping to start a church plant near where I grew up in Minnesota, and he wanted to gauge my interest in the plant, in the endeavor. And so we talked for a while about it, and, and during the call, during the conversation, he also mentioned that Hinckley's pastor was soon retiring. Stephen had done a year-long internship at the Hinckley Church not long prior, and, and he held the church in very high esteem. He had lots of good things to say about the church. That was one of the first times I heard about it, and I've kept that, 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 that conversation in mind these past couple years. But how, you might ask, did Stephen get my number? Well, his, his brother-in-law attended Westminster Seminary and was good friends with some ruffian named Colin Welch. <laughs> Stephen got my number from his brother-in-law who got it from Colin. Jen and I had no part in bringing about this surprising string of connections and avenues, and that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But as we started walking down them, it became apparent to us that the Lord was and had been for some time providentially working to put us in this place at this time with these kinds of relationships for this calling. Yet God's callings involve more than just providential placement. Second, God calls us to specific ways of serving neighbor through the input and influence of a people. That is to say, God's calling on individual lives is a matter of ecclesiology through and through. In verse 3, the apostles do not say, who thinks they're really good at table ministry? Who has Tuesday nights open? Because that's when you eat is on Tuesday night. Tacos. They do not say that. Rather, they say, brothers, you pick out from among you seven men. They exhort the church as a whole to discern fitting individuals. So in verse 5, it's the church, all the brothers and sisters of the gathering who chose Stephen and the other six. And then in verse 6, it's the apostles, the leaders of the church, who confirmed the selection and commissioned the seven through the laying on of hands. The seven didn't first or only volunteer out of their deep personal sense of mission. The church, the people of God, was part of the means by which God's calling of the seven took embodied form. So it is with us. We discern our callings and are confirmed and upheld in them through the testimony and working of the church, not only through our own inner sense. Entirely of God's grace, we go to this endeavor of pastoring in Hinckley with this. The affirmations of many of you throughout our 13 years at Grace, coupled with the eager support of our elders, 
The selection of me by the search committee up in Hinckley. The approval of the elders at First Pres. The surprisingly unanimous vote by the congregation to call me as pastor. The successful completion of ordination exams with the glad endorsement of a body of examiners. All of this showed that the mind of the church was in accord with our personal sense of leading. It is all blessed, merciful testimony to us that God is calling. Many Christians have little practical commitment to and engagement with the church of Christ. I imagine that unless they live by self-reliant bravado, they struggle mightily at times to discern God's callings with confidence. In any case, I cannot conceive of how they ignore the manifest witness of Scripture that God calls His people to specific service through the life, discernment, and testimony of the church. Third, God's callings are discerned by attentiveness to our formed personality and character. Notice in verse 3, that the apostles charged the church to select seven men of good repute, good reputation. The church was to avoid people who had a murky reputation and thus couldn't be trusted to protect those in an especially vulnerable position. The men needed were those with a publicly established track record of actually caring well and self-sacrificially for neighbor. They also needed to be full of the spirit and of wisdom, it says. I take that phrase to refer not to two separate qualities, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, but one spirit-formed quality. Foolish and reckless characters would spell disaster for widows in distress. So the church was to select people with such a deep, enduring relationship with the Holy Spirit that the Spirit's own infinite wisdom was beginning to make its mark on their lives. So what's in view here seems to be a matter of character and skill that was already being formed and practiced for some time. Part of discerning God's calling in the present involves considering how God has providentially shaped and prepared us in the past to excel in this or that area of service. Sometimes this will be plain and expected. Sometimes God's providential and preparatory work is unclear to us at the time, but will, in time to come, launch us into surprising endeavors. Personally, I have had far more time in biblical and theological training and research than normal and sane people should have. <laughs> but it is invaluable and it is obvious provision and preparatory work for a pastoral calling, perhaps especially one in a rural setting like we're headed to. But God has shaped and prepared us for small-town ministry in many other ways of which we were unaware as it was happening. Until recently, Jen and I have never seriously had small-town church ministry on our radar. <laughs> for a number of reasons, 
we had been focusing on urban and suburban contexts in our prayers and considerations. Yet, it cannot be an accident that we both grew up in small-town Minnesota. God has given us already a familiarity with the area so that we can feel comfortable in our skin there, as it were. We know what we're getting into. Differently, I have a friend whom I worked closely with uh, about a decade and a half ago, and it had been several years since we last connected, but it just so happens that this friend recently published a book on pastoring in small towns. And so that, that spurred me to call him up in mid-February and to talk small town life and labor and potential. What a blessing that conversation was. His input and his advice was a big turning point for us, the beginning of a vision for what God was directing us to. And that was something that was prepared long before we even considered this opportunity. God was shaping our character, our ability, our relationships, so as to make us candidates for this form of service. We are what we are, all of us, through an interworking of chance and choice. I think we too frequently and wrongheadedly major on the choice and minor on the chance which is out of our control, maybe precisely because it's out of our control and we don't like to think about things that are out of our control. But I've emphasized that our desires and decisions aren't sovereign. And in discerning God's callings, we do well to begin somewhere besides simply, what do I like to do? Still, it is an interworking of chance and choice. So, fourth, our predilections, we might say, our desires and decisions do play a part. Though it is reading between the lines, I think it's safe to assume that the seven in Acts 6 were willing and inclined to take up the ministry of the table. They weren't dragged kicking and screaming to the service God had for them. And suffice it to say, neither are Jen and I. Fifth and finally, we can, we can draw the circle much broader and say that God's callings on our lives always have some discernible fit in the larger divine play, the overall drama of God's mission in the world. Another way to say it is that our personal narratives and the God-given callings we take up in them are always subplots in the grand narrative of Scripture. So discerning calling must include discerning how this or that endeavor fits into the biblical storyline. Luke ends our passage with a key summary statement in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. There are two parallel summaries just like that that end a major section in the book in Acts 12, 24, and 19, 20 that also, just like verse 7 here in chapter 6, speak of the word increasing and multiplying. These summaries serve like punctuation marks to conclude acts in the drama. They signal that the word of God has been established and is abidingly active in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then in regions extending to the ends of the earth. 
With the crisis in Acts 6, 1 to 6 resolved, the word of God has been securely planted in Jerusalem, so firmly rooted that surprising as it may be to us readers, it has even begun to bear fruit among the priests, as it says at the end of verse 7. But maybe the conversion of many priests should not be surprising to us if we've been careful readers of the emphases of Luke's gospel. I would just encourage you to go back and read Luke 15, one of the most famous chapters in Luke, and ask, who is Jesus after in that chapter? If we've been careful readers of the emphases of Luke's gospel, and if we ask ourselves, for instance, how Luke came to know what Gamaliel and the council said behind closed doors in Acts 5, it's not just there. There's several places in the book of Acts where the council goes back in secret and private and talks, and Luke somehow knows what they said. Where do you find that out? If we, if we ask questions like this, maybe it wouldn't be so surprising to us that many priests also are being converted by this powerful, conquering, and increasing word of God. In any case, Acts 6-7 concludes the Jerusalem phase of the story and with verse 8, Luke then begins to narrate the victory of the word in Judea and Samaria. There's, there's, there's so much to say about this remarkable verse, Acts 6, 7, which I believe plays a huge role in this book. But our time is nearly up. So let me just point out one thing in conclusion. Luke chooses two important verbs in this verse increased and multiplied. The word increased and the disciples multiplied. Those are the same verbs used in one of the most important verses in all of Scripture, appearing at the beginning of Genesis and setting the stage for everything God does in the biblical drama. Recall that in Genesis 1.28, God blessed Adam and Eve and commissioned them to be fruitful or increase and to multiply and fill the earth. Luke, I believe, is alluding to God's mission in creating the world as if to say that now, finally, the living and powerful word of God proclaimed and embodied in the church is fulfilling God's great creational purposes. Again, we don't... We don't have time to explore the implications of this connection in detail, but we can say this. The rather mundane event recorded in Acts 6, the unspectacular matter of assisting some vulnerable Christians, is part of the great cosmic drama of God, creator of heaven and earth, which began all the way back in Genesis. The calling of the seven to a ministry of the table is a subplot in the cosmic drama. The differing but complementary calling of the apostles to a ministry of the word and prayer is also a subplot in that drama. And so it ought to be with the ministries we take up today. As we seek to discern God's callings to serve let us do so with Scripture in hand, asking how what we would do might fit into the shape and the logic of the biblical drama. Providential placement 
the approbation of the people of God, our formed personality and aptitude, our predilections and desires, and the fit our lives have in the divine play. These five touch points are at least how the Spirit of God moves and calls us in the continuance of the mission of Christ in the world. These five areas are what Jen and I have looked to in weighing weather, and finally that, God is calling us to service in Hinckley, Minnesota. But at the end of the day, our hope is not ultimately rooted in our confidence that we're on the right track. It is in the God who has done and always done mighty things, merciful things in the most surprising of ways, who conquers dominions of darkness through a word humbly proclaimed and enacted in everyday service of others, who multiplies a people in and even through persecution, who saves the lost to the uttermost through a mangled, rejected, and crucified Savior. He is the one worthy of our trust and to whom we entrust ourselves in the new and strange season opening up before us. He is the one to whom we, with sorrow but with confidence, entrust you, our brothers and sisters of Grace Church, as we all await Christ's return. Let us pray. Father God, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin you put death to flight, and you gave to us the hope of everlasting love. And so we pray with confidence, redeem all our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to proclaim you and praise you and do your will, empowering us by your Spirit to fulfill the everyday, ordinary, holy callings you give us to love neighbor for Christ's glory. And all the while, steal us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.